0: to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, c one Chong. Hi everyone, Uh, I hope you're doing well and somewhat prepared for the new year. For me, classes are winding down, and I'm looking forward to spending more time editing some videos that are in the back block. But as the year comes to a close, I still think about how much time has passed and what a crazy, surreal year it has been. I'm sure we have all been coping through these recent events in our own ways, but wherever you are, I wish you a wonderful and Merry Holidays. For today... I have on the podcast Weston Tiura, Born in Hawaii, Weston received a PA in Studio Art and Minor in Asian American Studies from Pomona College and an MFA from the California College of Arts. Weston has curated exhibitions for Southern Exposure, Kearney Street Workshop, and the Berkeley Art Center. He is also one of the core members of the Related Tactics Collective, a group of artists, writers, curators, and educators of color, creating projects and opportunities at the intersection of race and culture. I met Weston briefly during my time in the Bay Area and have followed his work and podcast since then. Weston's podcast, Unmaking, also tackles similar topics as my podcast, and I was naturally interested in learning more about his process. We also talk about how ideas of immigrant success can change from one generation to another, the visual language of development and progress, and working within a collective. The audio isn't the best for this particular episode, and just something that I have to keep trying to figure out with all these Zoom interviews, but, but I hope you can bear with it for this particular episode. It'll be a new year next time I release an episode. So, as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and happy new years. How are you doing? Doing all right.
1: I'm 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 kind of like tucked into my closet. My neighbor's playing some like really bassy music. So, I'm trying to find like I'm a sorry. corner that.
0: You're, wait, oh, oh. You, wait, you are in your closet.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, hopefully, this is, I'm, I think this is like the most dampened spot I have. So, and i'll try to like pack as much around me as possible
0: i mean thanks so much for for doing that
1: (laughs) no no i I know how it is like when you're trying to edit the audio and you're like ah they're like in the middle of saying something but that like sound just like came in
2: yeah yeah
0: yeah i'm used to it i'm always on the go so do you record a lot in other people's spaces or do you have your own studio
1: it was kind of a mix. It was it was hard because it was, and you know, I'm sure <laughs> you experienced this too. It's like, okay, wherever I can could get somebody to, yeah. to sit down.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, right now I have with me uh, Weston Teura, and um, I'm really excited to have Weston here. I met Weston when I was in Berkeley, actually, at the Cla Art Institute, and uh, I believe you also did a residency there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then I think I got your name from Carol, I believe. I forget, or I forgot where I got your name from, but um, <laughs> uh, eventually I reached out and we had a, a quick Indian, some Indian food, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, and then I, and then, yeah, we haven't really chatted too much, but I follow you a lot on Instagram. And it's, it's a weird world where keeping <laughs> in touch is a sort of weird relationship that everyone has. But thank you so much for agreeing to talk with
1: me. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
0: So yeah, so how's 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 it going? How's your day been?
1: Well, um, it's it's going okay so far. You know, I, I feel like this this situation we're in is like every day feels completely different and week to week. I like I've had some moments where it's like, oh yeah, there's momentum and I, I'm feeling like enthusiastic about about things. And there's other times when I'm just in a, a terrible slump. So yeah,
0: you know. How how's how's the situation in San Francisco right now?
1: Um, in terms of the air, it's it's cleared out for at least the time being, being which helps a lot. It feels like we're not all just kind of trying to trap ourselves inside. Yeah. And um, I have two dogs, so having to figure out what to do with them while it was really smoky yeah. and hot, and everything else was was getting to get a little hectic. So I'm glad that it's it's calmed a little at least in terms of that immediate uh situation
0: yeah the pictures and the videos are crazy and for the listeners i'm not sure when i release i will release this <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah uh just for the timeline um there's a bunch of huge fires that's that has been happening for the past few weeks yeah, um yeah. in all over the west coast actually and all the reaching the to Canada even so yeah it's uh, I don't know if anyone's seen the the videos or pictures but it's like cloudy all day Um, yeah so you mentioned that your family um, is back in Hawaii and you want to speak a bit about um, you know growing up in Hawaii and what was that like and then how did you get into the art
1: yeah um, let's see so I'm fourth-generation Japanese and Okinawan in Hawaii so my great-grandparents are the ones who immigrated um, my dad's side from Oruko, Oruku, Okinawa and my mom's side from Hiroshima in Japan. Okay. Um, so like around, I say, if I'm remembering correctly, I think my, what well, one side I think was like just before the 1900s and the other side was in like the 1910s or so. So, okay. um, that was your, so gra- yeah, your they,
0: grandparents, my great grandparents,
1: great grandparents. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. So my, so my grandparents were the first generation that were actually born in Hawaii. Wow. Wow. Um, and so, you know, they've been there for a long time. My, I come from a business family and okay. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually, because so my grandfather and his brothers started a, a supermarket and were kind of known for like being business folks in the community. And so there was a lot of growing up, there was this kind of narrative around like, oh, your family is like, has this kind of like immigrant success trajectory right like the the children of immigrants they were able to like work these different jobs and finally save up to start their own business and i think particularly because so they um my grandfather and one of his brothers were part of the 442nd 100th battalion during world war ii and um my grand uncle was killed during the war and he out of the brothers really wanted to start the supermarket. And so they started it in his kind of in his memory. Like the rest of them wanted to go into like the restaurant business oh, wow. instead. Um, and so there was, it was sort of like the immigrant success story coupled with this idea of like World War II, j8 JA, Okinawan, like, um, veteran stories and, and all of those things. And so like on a, Which is not to discount, like, the familiar and personal side. Like, I feel like my grandfather was this very hardworking, like, humble man. And, um, I really respected, like, the way that he thought about how to, how to do that kind of work. But it's, it's been interesting to think about the ways that that's been narrativized and sort of circulated in the local, like, community, business community, immigrant to me because it's it is so much embedded in all of those layers of like settler colonial immigrant civic civil rights narratives and um and yeah so I'm, i've just been trying to like think about like what that means and how to how to contend with that or think about how to both respect this part that is like a very key part of my family's story but also like be critical of the the ways that it's functioned. In, yeah. in the brother,
0: father. Yeah, we're all we're all entangled in this world, yeah. in different and complicated ways, and complicit. And yeah, were your parent? Were, were part of your family? Were they affected by the Japanese internment camps during World War II? They went. You told. You say you went. They also fought in the war. So.
1: Yeah, my my grandfather and his brother. Um, they they weren't. Um, you know there were a few. Like not a few, there was there were some people who were interned in Hawaii, but mo- the large, for the most parts, um, Japanese and Okinawan folks in Hawaii weren't just because. I mean, I think there's complicated uh, different interpretations of why that was. Some people, I think, the common line is that there were two there were too significant a number of the communions. Mm. It would have like undermined like the labor force and all these things. I don't know if it's that or other more complicated things, but. Um yeah, they, it wasn't as widespread as on the continental US.
0: Yeah. So what was it like growing up in Hawaii? Was it <laughs> <I> Imagine <laughs> growing up I've never been there actually. It's it's oh, okay. it's, it's okay. on it's on my to go list, but my sister's partner lives there, so or it oh, okay. is from there and he's I think a quarter or half Japanese, but but yeah, so she goes there okay. a lot. Um but I haven't been. <laughs>
1: um yeah i mean I, I, it's funny because i think when i was a kid my my main <laughs> impressions were that i was i was really sweaty a lot and, and <laughs> like um and would get frustrated that um people who weren't from Hawaii who would go there to live would would complain a lot about like being stuck on the island and like oh no it's island fever and you know i was always just like and this yeah. is what it is like don't move <laughs> if you're gonna like freak out about it it's an island but uh i have i've had a number of different impressions of it since then as i've reflected on it more i think racial formation is very different there just because demographically it's majority non-white but there i think it doesn't you know like i, I remember going um coming into undergrad and being a part of this asian american group and people were like talking about Asian pacific Islanders as this like aggregated pan-ethnic thing and I, I remember thinking that's not that doesn't make sense from the framework of hawaii because that's the majority and then as you're bringing together groups that in terms of like the power hierarchies in hawaii are you mean they're clumping
0: everyone together as Asia, asian, asian yeah, pacific lander
1: okay. in, in in terms of the continental framework mm-hmm. um and so and i don't think they quite understood what i was trying to articulate because i didn't know how to talk about it back then but um so you know in that sense i think it's like even just like as a japanese and okinawan person like i'm in the ethnic power ethnic power in the in a, in a in a privileged not the majority but like in the more privileged mm-hmm. ethnic group i mean it's it's like mari matsuda um Wrote a book. Uh, shoot, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of her book, but in it, she, was, she has an essay that's talking about the new new duna, which were the um, like the overseers on the mm. plantations in Hawaii, and those at that time historically were Portuguese immigrants. So they were like what we would now consider white, um, but they were kind of, you know, in that in-between state of um, not still being immigrant, not being at that time considered... Yeah. Um, and racial hierarchies are
0: constantly changing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so she uses that metaphor to talk about the role of, like, Japanese-Americans and Chinese-Americans in Hawaii. And so I think. So, it, you know, like, I think it, it's been this process of understanding what that means, what it means to be, like, a settler immigrant community in relation to Native Hawaiian struggles there. Yeah. Um,
0: did you grow up in a primarily Japanese community?
1: No, I think that's always the hard thing. Whenever I've talked about Hawaii things since I've, especially since I've lost, it's hard to talk about it as much in those terms also, because it's, it is a little, I mean, there's, there's definitely communities where you can look at it and say like, okay, that's a much more Japanese American community or a Filipino neighborhood or um, native Hawaiian communities. Um, but like it is much less segregated than it is here, and so it's 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 not quite as cut and dry as that. But I would say that it was a very mm. it, it, it leaned probably much more um, East Asian than say like if I were on the on the North Shore, like in Waimanalo or um, someplace like that. Mm. So yeah, yeah.
0: Um, And then growing up, did you, were you, were you always into art?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I'm trying to remember what, what sparked it. I feel like it's one of like my, some of my earliest memories of having a sense of what I was interested in what I wanted to do or, and even just like affirmation from teachers comes from art. Like Mm. I, um, I remember we had like these art exercises, like a, a teacher in like, third grade maybe brought in an aquarium into the classroom and we had to like sketch things from mm. it and my teacher wanted to keep one of my drawings oh, I was that's like nice. what? I, that's my drawing though <laughs> but, but it was this it, it was this validation I was like oh, okay maybe this is something that gives me a sense of identity amongst all the many things that yeah. are being thrown at you as a kid yeah, yeah. Um, and so that kind of continued as this thread of something that I always both enjoyed and, and found a sense of Like self identity from, Um, and then like one of my first jobs that I I, like I thought was actually significant or like appreciated more than just like something that I was doing just to have earn some money was in high school. I worked there was like a media design center at my school where they would create the educational graphics for like the elementary school teachers and things like that. And so I was like a student staff illustrator at that center, and so. So it was, it was this thing that was like, okay, maybe there are like practical outlets for these kinds of things. So, so going into school, I think I was, I was like, okay, maybe I can be like advertising person or a, a media person or yeah, something, yeah, you yeah, know, like yeah. those outlets that you think are the more practical yeah. applications. Actually makes money.
0: <laughs> um, and your yeah. parent, your parent, what'd your parents think about it?
1: You know, I actually that's one of the things i forgot to mention about the whole like family business art thing was that i think the part that maybe was to i don't want to say to my benefit but i think mm-hmm. was the kind of reality of that was that you know there's the the narrative of like immigrant success but then by the time it got to my dad's generation i think it was the reality of like oh what does it mean to actually have a business in like this this economy and with um you know national corporations coming into hawaii and like safeway being this huge competitor or cost score of these places and so they actually sold off the business um later on as i became an adult and i think that whole experience was helpful in terms of my parents generation understanding that business are these traditional things that like an immigrant family might look to as like, the, the, yeah, this is what you're supposed to do. um, That they realize that those aren't as stable as people say it is. And so as long as we have jobs and like are making money and not like just floundering, I think they're, Generally supportive of That's what good. we want to do, yeah. So we're like, we kind of made it through that hump of the, of the like, whole, like grappling with, yeah. with jobs and, and parental approval.
0: But they, but they like weren't worried. Like I think the experience I have and most you know other immigrant families have, they just don't know what art is, so they don't even know what to support. Right? They're like, oh, you know, like my dad always says, like, okay, like what's the next step to getting a raise? <laughs> like, and i'm like i if i knew the answer i would be really successful and you know but um you know but as you know i think that's that's the hardest part is sort of like this sort of fear of the unknown whereas at least if you get a design job in most parents mind the abstract sense of it is like okay well you work for years you move up you get a better title on a business card you know blah 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 that that, yeah. was, that was that's what my experience was the fear is of
1: yeah and I definitely think they still had that worry i mean you know even things like the like thinking for half a second that i was going to go into advertising was because they were like yeah. oh here's like why don't you like talk to this person so you know <laughs> um but i think i'm not actually sure like what the switch was that fit for them i think they were kind of quietly worried in the backgrounds and good. I think maybe when they came to one of my first shows I think they were like oh okay you know like we still don't understand your art and <laughs> we don't understand what's going on but like you're like this is not just like you're in your closet like painting pictures like yes. it's in the world and people seem to want to support it <laughs> and um and it's, especially since I think yeah like I, I've always had these other art adjacent Kind of jobs yeah. that they were like, okay, that's legible to us, and yeah. it seems like you you have something stable that's that's in balance with this, and yeah. so um, it wasn't quite as big a crisis for them.
0: And so, yeah, you and then you got a BA in Studio Art from Pomona with minor in Asian American Studies. How how, how was going to Pomona?
1: It was, I think, it was a really formative experience because it was my first. You know, big foray away from Hawaii, yeah, so yeah. going through all of that, kind of like adjusting to what it means to be here in California on the continent in this totally different framework, and then and like being introduced to Asian American activism, Asian American studies related activism. I was part of the generation of students that was able to finally push through an Asian American Studies department after you know decades and generations. You of mean like it was
0: it didn't exist before?
1: Yeah, so there was a program and like collections of classes, but it wasn't a formal department. But and it became a. Um, intercollegiate uh, department because uh, Pomon's part of the five college uh, or the the climate colleges
0: so you created your minor that you that you got kind kind of i mean it was
1: i was i think i was maybe the first official minor um and i was one of the first like student liaisons with the department in my last year so that was yeah so uh, you know just like I, i remember always looking at the like the asian american studies department like someplace like ucla and like a lot of the people i worked with later in la when i was living there um had come out of that program and so it was interesting talking to them about their experiences versus ours because i think there was something about that process of having to fight for it that was really important to understand but like to not take it for granted right. not that it, those folks are taking it for granted but like for myself to to remember not to take those things for granted and to really understand like the reasons why creating institutional resources like that that could li- live between generations and mm, yeah. not have to be fought for constantly was right. really important. And so, That's yeah, I, I think I think that just kind of like was this major framework shift for me. I,
0: I've never I've never done anything like that. What was the process of getting a department started from for, for, from like a student perspective? Because usually I see like directors or like. You know, hire up people trying to pad their resume, being oh, I created this 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 major, this new department. What was that process like as a student to create your own department at a college?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, for me, I was, I feel like I was especially lucky because I kind of came of my awakening mm-hmm. much later than even just the peers that I was part of that that cohort with, and so a lot they were the ones who really did a lot of the heavy mm-hmm. lifting around the organizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my role was much more just like coming in at a point where it was like the last presentations to like the faculty to like okay this is i remember the like the presentation was like this is the hole in our education and like tried to do this whole like community town hall forum thing but what i think was really important in that was that at that forum we were able to bring together faculty from like the heads of the dean of faculty of the different colleges and then key faculty supporters especially from black studies and Mm. latino studies Mm. um and i think like i I think i was at the time was when i was taking this black feminist theory class from uh, phyllis jackson who actually was part of the the black panthers in her youth Mm. and she was one of the art history professors at pomona or is one of the art history professors at pomona and in class i remember her being very supportive of the moment because for her Asian American studies play this very critical role in because of the ways that Asian Americans are used and model minority concepts yeah. are used yeah. um, as a wedge a lot of her work is also about um, like whiteness studies and so yeah. she's like it's absolutely the bridge between understanding from this theory and whiteness studies and if we don't have Asian American studies then we don't have like a key part of the, the narrative of how these things get formed and she said that in this in this forum And I I don't know if you know the dynamics of the Cremont Colleges, but Cremont McKenna College is kind of the the really right wing conservative um, college out of them. Um, It's where the Cremont Institute is, which is one of the like think tanks that's been putting out a lot of the really reactionary stuff in politics right now. And the dean of faculty for that college, I I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something really like... You know, basically, like, why would we support this? Yeah. And, and to really, like, dismiss um, Yeah, vocally talk shit about it in, in the middle of that forum. And I remember looking at some of the other GNO faculty and they were just like, oh my God, now we have to pass this because you made us look so fucking bad in front of everyone else. And so, um, you know, it was, I yeah. think it was, it was really important in understanding the way those kinds of tactics works too, mm-hmm. because I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, even leading up to that forum, there were, a series of like escalating things where we would, you know, like it was putting out the statement, asking for these demands, trying to push them further and further. Yeah. The form was this, the next step in that. And so once that happened, it was this clear thing. We had pushed the, the um, administration, finally been able to put them in a position where yeah. if they didn't do that, there was going to be even more blowback and they knew mm-hmm. that. And so it, it was just like incredibly important, like kind of tactical um, learning process. Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then you can kind of see, see like how that kind of continues through your current community um, work and networking. And then, so from there, how, how many years did you take off before going into master's, or did you go directly into the master's at CCA? I
1: took five years. Oh, yeah, okay, that's good. Before going to grad school, yeah, yeah. It's kind of that, like in between. <laughs> I, took, <laughs> number, I, th- I, I think
0: it took four, yeah, four or five as well, yeah.
1: Yeah, in that time I was working in... With a bunch of different nonprofits in LA, mostly oh, okay. um, doing some like kind of entry level arts administration stuff, and then some like essentially like youth leadership developments work, um, running the kind of arts component to the, those organizations. So mostly youth organizing through just like like working on political graphics for them or yeah. working on murals for them. So, oh, nice. so it's like much more on the like community art side of things.
0: What do you, do you like? LA? Do you, do you have like a as a Bay Area person, <laughs> like it.
1: you know it, it's it, it doesn't come up as much now. But I think because of that experience, I'm very like protective of LA in some ways. Okay, it, yeah. it, at least within the context of the Bay Area, because I I do feel like there's yeah, it's such a like complicated and layered place. And whenever people talk shit about it, and I just feel like oh, maybe they're just like hanging out in the wrong places or like with the wrong people because. Yeah. You know, and and I think it's also because you know, in that in those five years, I feel like ninety percent of my interactions with other people of color because yeah. it was, i was just in these community settings where it was much more about like the the complications and nuances of what it means to be like asian asian American in those spaces where there's a lot of you no know, complicated dynamics that i was stepping into amongst other communities of color yeah um especially when i would do any kind of community work in say like south la and like stepping into the legacy of you know post 92 la uprisings kind yeah. of Um, dynamics and so it was that it was a real like oh okay I need to learn this because this is not what I grew up in but it's very much what I'm now living with and so then to go from that to like grad school where it was much 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 more white it's just like this oh I I, (laughs) now I'm like scrambling to readjust again and so whenever people would then talk about LA I was just like oh I mean that's not my experience with LA so just hang out in a different area or like talk to other people.
0: I lived in LA for two years and I think that I think that I realized was it's just LA is so massive. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think it's one of the harder cities that I've been to, to actually try to get your head around because yeah. like, you know, LA is both large, but also thrives on keeping people apart because of mm-hmm. its distance and also the mindset right like you're in your mm-hmm. car like you can live your entire life going from your home to west hollywood or whatever wherever you know and not really mm-hmm. even you know see central south la so yeah i mean like in in my 2 years there I still felt like i didn't really understand the city and then there oh. i and, but also i was very aware like there's huge sections i just never visited but there's yeah. tons of uh, activity and people there so Whereas I feel like, yeah. I mean, that, that exists every city, but I felt like I just didn't see a lot of the city compared compared to my experiences traveling in
1: other cities
0: or living in yeah. other cities.
1: I feel like I was really lucky. And this happened actually also in the Bay, but one of my first jobs in LA was working for this educational organization where I had to go into different schools and teach these arts-based um, social issue discussion workshops where we'd use a piece of art to talk about issues and then do these arts activities with them where they were creating artwork that reflected issues that they were interested in. And we, I, I think I literally what would go from like an elementary school in Compton to a middle school in Beverly Hills to you know high school in Long Beach, you know, so I really saw the gamut of yeah. what LA was and that was a good crash course of like, yeah. Oh, this <laughs> both what you're saying that it's a huge place where every single area is, is very different and isolated from one another and to get a sense of how they relate to one another. And then from there to go into more specific um, work where I was working.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then from there you went to CCA. Were you interested in staying in California?
1: You know, I, I'm trying to remember, I think part of the, so one of the challenges of how I, went through undergrad i guess was that i don't i i was much more connected to say the like asian american studies activist side and didn't really know how to negotiate things in the art department like i had a couple of professors Mm -hmm. who were supportive but because of that i think i just didn't get the education around like what (laughs) what is the arts community what is like things like grad school i I didn't wouldn't have considered i was thinking more Mm -hmm. like of going into like History of Consciousness at Santa Cruz or like Cultural Studies, mm. not an MFA. And so then when it came to applying for an MFA, I just kind of applied wherever. And the, the schools I applied to, like CCA, were the ones I kind of heard of at one point. And yeah, so yeah. Um, it wasn't very strategic. But yeah, I think I was kind of looking on the West Coast just because that's what I knew and didn't necessarily want to totally transplant myself. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think it was that deliberate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I Maybe mean, you, you just subconsciously love the sun, right? I mean, Hawaii, uh, San Francisco, LA, yeah.
1: And, and yeah, I mean, I guess to be fair to myself, it was, yeah, I don't think I necessarily wanted to move that much further away from Hawaii just yeah. because I do try to go home to yeah. see my family and, you know, moving further and further away. It's far, it's as far, it's <laughs> far,
0: far from the East Coast.
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah um so but then okay so you weren't no one was sort of guiding you in terms of like the art community so then why you, were you like oh i'm gonna go to grad school for art then what was that switch
1: yeah. i think it was it was this especially this one experience so and you, you probably know highways performance space in santa monica uh-uh, it's no. um with the um 18th street art complex
0: okay oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 there's like uh, uh like 50 galleries there <laughs> yeah yeah,
1: yeah. I think. um Yeah, so one of uh, an artist, more a performance artist, but he invited me to do like a little gallery show in the lobby of highways, and it was no. At that time, I was basically doing political posters, so Mm. no, it 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 was stuff that was meant to be very direct and Mm -hmm. um, speak to certain issues and. No, because I didn't really know what I was doing. Like, that's what I was showing. And this one guy came to the opening who I didn't know and was just kind of looking around. And then he, like, turned to this, um, the, like, food on the table and was just like, oh, this is the most interesting thing here and, like, walked out. (laughs) And, and I was like, okay, well, what an ass. But also, you know, it, it made me realize. Oh, you know, this stuff speaks to a, a very particular yeah. set of issues and communities and has a context. But when it's removed from that context, this is yeah. a very different language yeah. and landscape. And I don't know how to talk to people mm. like that. in you no, know, and which is not to say like, Oh, I came up out of community arts and I don't know how to operate. Like I, came, and I was trained as a studio artist yeah. in undergrad, you know, but I, I think I'd push against that so hard mm. and didn't know how to resolve those two sides of my experience yeah and so it it just made me realize like oh I do want to broaden the language and the what kinds of things I'm able to talk about and who I'm able to talk to about these things and then it was was sort of this transition point in my job at the time so it just seemed like the right time to make a change
2: yeah
1: and so yeah that's when I decided to apply to school and ended up at CCA
0: how was CCA you said you mentioned that was like very very white I don't know too much about CCA
1: yeah yeah i mean i think the one of the saving graces was that my one of my professors lydia matthews was the co-founder of what was at the time i think called VizCrit and is now the visual and critical studies department Mm. and she um almost as soon as i got there she was like you need to also apply for this dual degree in in the um, visual and critical studies and do that because i think it'll be good for you and is sort of echoes the work that you've done before. And so I applied to that. And I think um, having that that counterbalance between the MFA side of things and the critical study side of things was really helpful in... They, they kind of balanced each other out because mm-hmm. we would be in the MFA side of things and people would, wouldn't necessarily always have the like conceptual or critical frameworks to talk about the issues that I was interested in. And then in the visual critical studies <laughs> discussions, some of our peers would be, I feel like they were floundering because they're like, how do we, like, how do you find agency in dealing with these major issues that we're grappling with? And they would kind of spin into that, like, theoretical, yeah, yeah. like, depression. And, um, but we, I felt like we had these tools because we were practitioners to at least, you know, even if they were like these symbolic gestures, at least it was, it was some sense of agency or at least a, a path through how to, an outlet. Yeah. With an and, outlet, yeah. yeah. It's
0: supposed to yeah. be like, ah, oh, the world's burning. Yeah, right,
1: right, right, right. Which it is right now, but <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it, yeah, they they helped uh, support one another, uh-huh. and that's also part of a collective related tactics. And two of the other two members of related tactics, um, Michelle Carlson and then Nathan yeah. Watson, are were also in grad school with me. Michelle was also uh-huh. a dual degree, mm-hmm. and so we we all kind of were like, you know, some of the the folks of color who are interested in talking about those issues more explicitly and kind of bonded together and um, with Michelle we also got to spend the extra year in um, the dual degree program and oh, through nice. those things and so yeah so that helped I feel like even if the transition was really jarring I eventually was able to find a community.
0: Was the visual critical studies sort of like a colonial sort of aesthetic class? Was that what sort of the centering on? Or
1: um, It's a lot of like visual studies stuff in general so um, you know, the, some of the core classes are around like Visuality, like ethnic studies, cultural studies yeah. kind of frameworks. Um, they, I think they tend to have a very strong queer studies, um, like core. And like a, a lot of the folks who've come through more recently are adjacent to queer studies. So, and, and I think so across our cohort, there was a pretty wide range of projects and things that folks were interested in. But yeah. like Michelle wrote about like this sort of like critical analysis of like transnational adoption and the visuality and, and ways that that manifests and in the culture. And I did a thesis writing about trying to grapple with how um, Asian American artists were the ones that I was looking at were using this framework that I was calling pirate futurism. Because I was trying to, you know, that was like in the peak of post-identity politics and conversations. And so I was trying to figure out a way of to talk about Asian American artists' work without it relying on the same old um, frameworks of identity-based art because we were in this like weird moment we we're all trying to is, it, is, this, is, <laughs> it,
0: is this when obama was elected is that what you're is this the time you're talking
1: 2000, about two, 2004 to 2007 oh. so that yeah so it was like right when um the one way or another show um had launched at the asia society mm. um there was a um, a show at the honolulu museum that was doing like a post identity show around filipino artists the phantom sighting show at lakma around latino artists um Mm. had just kind of i think just shown or was about to show so it was like right around that era and then the studio museums like f series had been going on for a bit so Mm. yeah so it was like in the middle of all of those kinds of things when we're all trying to figure out how to talk about the things that were still relevant but the rest of the arts community hadn't caught up with
2: it yeah
0: well i think the arts community is still catching up right Right. (laughs) releasing releasing statements now about supporting black (laughs) lives matter
2: right
0: and yeah um yeah and so so then from cca what what did you do after did you stay in i assume you stayed in the bay area or did you kind of travel around
1: and come back i I stayed in the bay area um i pretty much Immediately started working with the San Francisco Arts Commission, and so kind of similar to what I was saying earlier about that job, that where I was teaching in classes all around L.A. County and and Southern California, it was this chance to look at the arts ecosystem from this like commission level and citywide level so it also introduced me to what was happening in other disciplines as well and so but this um, is in San Fran-
0: all over San Francisco apparently. yeah yeah
1: yeah and so I was working especially for a, a program called, that was at the time called the cultural equity grants program which was their co- cultural equity funding um, there's two major. Arts funding, city-based arts funding grants for the arts, which is like big general operating support for everybody, and then Culture Equity, which was founded by activists to make up for the fact that grants for the arts wasn't funding a lot of you know communities of color, queer artists, people with disabilities, all of these communities that had been overlooked. And so it was, it was this chance and individual artists as a whole. And so it was this really great chance to understand the like professional mechanics of like what all of those kinds of things mean from a cultural equity framework and like in some ways it was like this really i was i was just doing this class visit the other day and i was trying to connect all of these threads and i realized like oh yeah the the chance to work at cultural equity grants program was absolutely this, this thread that continued from everything else it was like this is the p- practical application of like all of the theoretical stuff that i was learning like yeah, yeah. how do you then make that argument and the case for how that applies to so like people on the being able to do their work and organizations being able to sustain themselves
0: yeah yeah and i assume you also continue your studio practice this entire yeah. time how did your work shift from cca to a lot of the work that you're doing now with the paper stuff um, yeah yeah and how did you get into that
1: so i was um while i was in in grad school I was uh, in the painting and drawing department and so at first I was trying to paint because when I was in undergrad the only painting they had was like oil painting okay. and so in retrospect I feel like oh man I was really like not educated as early as I wish I had been in like the scope of, of practices and so while I was in grad school I kind of made the transition to drawing just because that had so much more flexibility mm-hmm. and so when I was when I got out of school I was making these um these kind of like I would draw these, these elements and cut them out and recollage them. And so there were these very textured layered um, drawings that had a lot of detail and um, had this kind of like chaotic energy to a lot of them. And I think it was maybe a few years out of school, I was um, on this panel with another artist that I was exhibiting with. And she asked me during the panel, like, oh, you know, you're going through all this effort to like, draw and recollage and cut out these things like why aren't you just dealing with them as sculptures rather than like going through the yeah. process of gluing them back onto the paper and dealing with them as these forcing them back into being 2d objects yeah and it kind of was this light bulb switch actually it was um gina valentine um who's who's one of the co-founders of black lunch table and, okay. and yeah so it was like that absolutely shifted my thinking and that's kind of how i then just jumped into making sculptures was to that that challenge that she posed to me on on that panel
0: in in public,
1: yeah. and it was, it was you know it wasn't like a an antagonistic thing. It was just this like like genuine question of like, huh. Um, I think that's so, the first time
0: I've heard someone have like an epiphany in like in a
1: panel. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so since then I've I've been playing with paper sculptures. Although even that sh- shifted more recently. But I think especially when I was starting, I really like the work that I was making was kind of in this like paper crafty vein where Mm -hmm. I was recreating everyday objects and as well as more small like model type elements and combining them together and it was a lot about like the fragility of these things that I was assembling together because you know especially when the installations would get more complicated over time even just like the month that a show would be on I could see like parts of the installation scientist side sag or, oh, yeah, yeah. or lean and so it was you know, and I really liked the fragility that was like the end up tension that was in the work and then I think more recently I, I did a residency a few years ago um, at Recology which is the yeah. San Francisco dump yeah. and that was really formative because you know up until that point I had been either um, using like these you know nice basically watercolor papers to like build these things Oh, and, and also, spray painting uh, oh,
0: just for awesome. the just for the listeners ecology is sort of like this amazing residency in in a recycling slash a dump processing plant in, right outside or in san francisco um, yeah. and i think you have to live in san francisco because I, 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 yeah. I when i was there they don't provide housing and I, I think that's a requirement you need to live there for a year but if anyone lives in san francisco it's like this yeah you get access to all the dump that gets thrown out in san francisco which like it's not actually dumped because like it's all like high end nice stuff relative because of the you know the type of things that people throw out in san francisco it's like much higher (laughs) quality
1: (laughs) yeah and the the area that you particularly get access to is the public disposal area so it's like where it's mostly like either construction um stuff so like the yeah. people clearing out houses will come and dump stuff so it's a lot of like broken wood and concrete and and dirt um and then unfortunately there's like a lot of people's old storage spaces or like when you can tell it's like maybe someone passed away or mm-hmm. like folks had to move away and so like it's just or like offices that close down and they're dumping all of their office furniture so you have like this amazing stuff that's like brand new chairs and you're like what the fuck's going on Mm. um and so yeah it can range from like really dirty like broken down stuff to like perfectly good items and i and i entered into that residency with the basically the framework of like okay so this is the sf dump it's where it's something that everyone in the city has to interact with even if they don't realize that Mm. they're interacting with it and so it i wanted to look at it as this lens of What's happening in the city at that time, particularly around gentrification and displacement, and you know what's getting left behind as people are getting pushed out or new people are coming into the city. Um, and so I was looking for. At first, it was like very obvious markers of those things, like real estate signs or you know moving boxes or like you know sometimes those chairs. So like I was collecting a bunch of chairs and recreating them in these, these piles of like uh, approximations of chairs. But it was it was also I was finding items, recreating them using the paper that I would find. So it was like old office supplies or like archival materials that I was finding. So there were um, like these real estate counseling documents that I found that had just been tossed out, um, as well as like old historic records of the redevelopment era from the 60s and like the plans around that, the, the city documents talking about it. And so I was using some of these things in the sculptures that, and the recreations of the objects that I was finding. But I think the so along with that process, it was also just this shift of like, oh, okay, I don't want to use like these pristine art materials anymore. I want to use things that have history. So it was these papers that I was finding. Um, and so then, before
0: s- you were cutting like
1: clean paper, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think it was also this. I realized it was this kind of research shift too because. It made me realize that the materials could be the research as well like yeah it, was, it wasn't just like finding things to be the vehicle to right. talk about these other things the materials themselves were part of that and right. so, so since then it's been I and mean, i've tried to be much more omnivorous in in how to gather those things and to understand that that gathering process is part of understanding sites or the research that i'm doing yeah. so like I might be looking for an archive about the history of a site, but then I can also go yeah. to the site and gather like the trash that's been left behind and make sculptures out of that. And some, yeah. some of it's paper, some of it's not paper, but it's more about like finding the materials with history that I can work with. And so. And this was what. You- I, uh it's I think it was 2016 I want okay. to say. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. So that, that was a, another like massive shift in, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then you. I was gonna. I'm gonna sort of go back. You. You mentioned um, related tactics. I also saw that you had done some work, which is like a collective. You said with two other members. Um, and I was just curious how how you know how did that come about? Because I when I looked on your website it looked like it seemed like the first works around 2016. Um, and so I'm not sure like you know how did that process start up with this sort of collective and how has that been?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, you yeah, know, kind of like I was saying, we we've been friends since grad school and so it's been this informal conversation since then but it didn't become a formalized thing until yeah i guess it was late 2015 when we we said okay like let's create a collective out of this before that we had um Michelle and i had done this collaborative exhibition in like 2008 or something like that but that was sort of like the proto version of of things i guess and so it took another you know 7 years before we formalized things um, and I think the, the first, like, tangible project that we had together was this exhibition at Southern Exposure where we, it, and it, it kind of started because at one point, all three of us had been on their curatorial console. So we'd been very involved with the organization. And, um, at that time, Nate and I had cycled off, but Michelle was a, a member of the console and they were having conversations about an upcoming exhibition slot and they wanted to program it was a pretty quick turnaround and they wanted to um bring in a bunch of artists to do something it's like at the end of the year so they wanted to do something around the new year Mm. um and you know the the discussion that um, michelle was observing was really around like a lot of the artists that tend to already have cycled through the organization and she really wanted to push and take the opportunity to like one work with a new set of artists, and two to um, it was a predominantly white group of artists, and she wanted to like push them and say like, "Look, give this to me. <laughs> we can curate a show with like a lot of new artists that you haven't worked with in the past, and all like folks of color, and to show like that this is possible and that um, it can be done." And so that was kind of the first kick, and she was like, "All right, the two of you need to jump in and help me with this project." And that's kind of how collector started it was like and in some ways I feel like it was the roots of a lot of what we continue to do came out of that. Like the this idea of like either explicit or implicit institutional critique involving trying to create spaces for other artists to also be involved in the process and have opportunities. There were a lot of basically the show was formatted around like takeaways that was come that's continued to be a part of what's important to us that there it's not, not trying to sell more necessarily, it's like this: trying to give away the materials and and mm. um, make it less less precious. And yeah, and of Think Tank and Carl were were part of that show. And so it was uh, this. Okay. Yeah, so it was like you know also a great chance to be like these are folks that I've been following online and like been very impressed by and wanted yeah, to yeah. connect with somehow. So it was also an opportunity to be like. Right, who do, who do we also just really want to connect to and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and bring into this process? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that and that kind of sparked things, and and it's it took a couple of years, I think, for us to like get a real sense of like what we're trying to do and how things come together. And I think kind of as as you were alluding to earlier, I think as the the arts institutional community has realized that they have long deferred talking about these issues. We've gotten called upon more and more to, to help people try to grapple with those issues, which yeah. is interesting. But, um, it, it does also make me glad to have the support of the collective together to, to really think through these things and make sure that we have each other's backs and yes. can, um, Oh, and I guess, you know, also that you were asking earlier, I think the way that it really differs from our individual practices is that, you know, like I was saying in terms of like even just my, my thesis in grad school, like we all came out of that kind of post multicultural era, like post identity dialogue in our education. And I think that really shaped a lot of the way that our individual practices were, were formed and how the, the approaches that we took in in our work and i think when we started the collective it was a very deliberate decision to say all right we may not be able to always talk about these things explicitly in our individual practices without getting certain kinds of critiques that we just don't we're tired of but the collectives can be a space to talk about those things very explicitly and not have to code things or be yeah. you know like worry about being didactic or you know all of those things get that get thrown at art right, so color. Right. like we could just say like all right this is what it is the statements are clear and whenever we do find ourselves slipping into like abstraction or like trying to like bodge things we're like wait no that's that's not what this is for this is to be more direct which is not to say I think we're also tr- trying to figure out ways to kind of embrace a range of tactics from like much more direct to More poetic but that it's still the intention is still very um direct and clear
2: yeah Um,
1: so yeah so it's nice to have that that counterbalance in our practices as well
0: yeah yeah i mean for me i i i didn't realize at the time but after doing it for so long the the podcast is sort of my outlet for sort of being direct Yeah. yeah yeah Because I always feel like it it grounds everything else that I'm working on, and allows me to be as abstract as I want to in my in my work. <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: totally, yeah, I know.
0: You know, and, and and it kind of opened up a lot of things that I didn't realize that it would allow me to do. But like, and then speaking of podcasts, I know, you know, you also um, have a podcast called Unmaking that's part of Art Practical. Though I was I was doing some research, and it looks like Art Practical isn't didn't get new funding, and so its future is sort of uncertain. I'm not sure. Um and I, I don't know what how that what it means on unmaking making because I know you also finished your your last season in two thousand and nineteen, so I don't know if if there's a future for that but I'm, I'm curious yeah could you t- could you talk a bit about your podcast and how you got that started and why why you wanted to make that podcast
1: yeah, yeah it was um in some ways I feel like our our missions are very aligned it's it it was a podcast that was also about talking with practitioners of color about their work and and I think it, it actually really was shaped by by related tactics. It was it was oh, almost okay. like this like it wasn't an official project of related tactics, but it was kind of this proto like parallel project. Yeah, yeah. Um also because Michelle was the director of Art Practical for a while. And oh. so it was this way to have this dialogue in this very different format and to accomplish some of the same goals around like Creating space to talk with other folks about their work and to highlight other mm-hmm. artists of color. And yeah, so I went on, I, I sort of wrapped up the podcast a little over a year ago now. And I think it was because it was, I was also just realizing that, like, I, if I was going to continue, I wanted to rethink the format and the direction of how I was approaching it and just trying to balance it within the scope of other parts of my practice and work. I think I've, when I've talked about it, I don't know that it's over, over, but it's definitely on indefinite pause until I can figure out what to do with it.
0: What was the thing that you, what, what was the direction that you wanted to take it that you think it wasn't going?
1: I think I, if I were to restart it again, I, I wanted to have it be a little bit more um, contained where I had an even tighter set of themes that was a smaller set of episodes so that i could really dive into it potentially trying to cross over not just having like an artist an episode let's see if it could be woven together a little bit more um i was never able to do that just because of trying to coordinate and schedule things you mean um, like have
0: more than one person on or
2: over multiple yeah, episodes
1: yeah. yeah maybe like and you know this wasn't a definite thing but like maybe it would be like three artists and three episodes but that because of the thematic formation of, of those three episodes all three artists would be in all three episodes so that it could focus on different facets of the work yeah. in each episode or something like yeah. that yeah. um yeah just to, to to tighten it up a little bit but as i'm sure you you know very well like that just requires a lot more production than planning and yeah. I, I wasn't i wasn't ready to take that on at the moment and then the the transition of practical happened, and that said they um they are no longer attached to california cca yeah, yeah. um and so that's part of the the flux right now they don't have a home base or they're now um or at least archiving is supported through intersection for the arts but it's this kind of it's on hold as they figure out some of those things yeah um you know it's the, kind of the challenge of art publishing at the moment There's, increasingly fewer outlets for those things and the support for those outlets that do exist are are challenging to secure
0: and falling apart each day with <laughs> right. yeah i can only imagine um yeah yeah, yeah i mean those are all things I, i'm constantly thinking about with my podcast like yeah but yeah like now i've been doing more and more zoom interviews so like I'm have to like I'm having to reach out to people because in the past I've always re- been able to reach out to communities that I've lived in, right? Yeah. And so that's been really nice. And so now I'm sort of like having to rethink like now that I have a chance to reach out to anyone, who do I want to reach out to? And mm. and uh, and it's also a little different, also, because like I don't necessarily know everyone who I'm reaching right. out to. Uh, right. Right. But yeah, no, yeah. I mean. It's nice. It's it's sometimes nice to have like a whole production team behind you because I listen to some podcasts and like, or I've been reached out by like the producer of the show to, and they're like doing all the work. And I'm just like, I'm just like, man, that would be like a load off my shoulder if I didn't have to do all that. But
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. The dream.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I was, I'm also interested in that you, I was looking through some of your work online and you recently, you wrote this um, interesting essay that you called, uh, Where Shall We Go From Here? That was um, it, it seemed to be in conjunction with this uh, video and installation piece that you did. And what was interesting, at least based based on what I read, was like you were talking about how you were sort of returning back to Honolulu um, in terms of like the topic and the- thematic uh, ideas of your work. And yeah, I'm curious if you could, talk about that in terms of why now go back to honolulu why not before i mean i can say for me i've never done any work about my time in new hampshire so, <laughs> so but i'm just curious like what brought you to back to honolulu and um what was that sort of um like
1: yeah i was just thinking about this again because of that class because i did the other day because i presented two of my hawaii related projects back to back I never think of together, but it does feel like it's this kind of like slow arc that did start a little earlier than I thought it did at first. So a handful of years ago, I did a project at the Asian Art Museum where I was invited to do a kind of just like this pop-up event-based project. And the curator that I was working with, Mark Mayer, was knew that I would be was interested in doing something around Hawaii and was challenging me to do something that didn't just like abstract and dodge away from those the complications or my layered feelings about that. And I think because I had always because it was so close to home and it was kind of like I was saying earlier, like my the framework of being there was is so different that I always worry that the things that I say or think about Hawaii now are steeped in the framework of like being on the continental U.S. and not understanding Mm. what it is to be in Hawaii anymore. And so, you know, like I just have all of these like self-doubts that come up before I even get started on the project. So I was trying to like dodge away from things and he was just like, all right, why don't you like interview people and talk to other folks who had been from Hawaii as well and, and start from there. And so I did this project where I was talking about objects that represented people's relationship to either other folks who also are no longer in Hawaii who moved away and um their relationships or lack of relationship to Hawaii and I created these sculptures that reinterpreted the things that they were talking about. And so and then the more recent project was a project that was actually gonna take place in Hawaii. Um says so Gay Chan, the the artist and who was the head of the art department at the University of Hawaii at the time, invited me back to do a project there. Mm. And she knew, knew it was going to be my first project back in Hawaii. So part of it was like a practical thing. Like I just never had a opportunity to do that. And mm. so um, it was thanks to her that I got to do that project. And then it was also just, you know, I hadn't really found a way to grapple with those issues in the way that fully made sense to me. And so the, the, the issues talk... of
0: like I mean you tackled about a bunch of those issues. What were some of the issues that that you were not sure about? Like the colonialism of it, the um
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean colonialism you know, home belonging. Mm-hmm. Um what she and I think what I appreciate was that when she invited me gave invited me to do that project, she very specifically asked me if I would be interested in doing a project around like development in a certain neighborhood in Honolulu and that was really helpful because a lot of my work is around like the visual language of like development and the built environment and so it was a she helped kind of like aim all of that on on a very particular thing but even then I wasn't sure like how to approach it and so luckily because I'm from there and can and go back to visit my family I could spend some time in that area and and doing research and just kind of mulling over what what my observations of the place were and i think um one of the things i kind of like obliquely talked about in that essay but i think was also maybe something that i was trying to grapple with was you know that i've been now lived away from hawaii longer than i spent there growing up and so you know it was this challenging like how do i talk about some place that for all intents and purposes like i may have a connection there but like really i'm an outsider and like kind of a tourist there now and so like how do, like what is what is the relevance of like a bay area perspective on this and so so that's why i also wanted to focus on like the kind of high-end luxury development that's happening in the city because i feel like a lot of the marketing around that development is to international buyers or people in the bay area in the Silicon Valley or you know like it's it's both for people in Hawaii but also very marketed to a a broader like marketplace and investors and it's being developed by the Howard Hughes Corporation who's based in Texas so it's like you know it's 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 also it's already so much about places not in Hawaii and so and then I was um, at least when I first started that project I was also interested in within the Bay Area there's there was that movement for seasteading for a while really? i don't know if you've heard of it seasteading C- so it was no, like i don't know uh, it was it was kind of this like idea that all of these big tech investors were going to create these floating island cities in the middle of the pacific that so that they could like dodge the regulations of any oh. one country and taxes you know all those things yeah, like what
0: Elon Musk is trying to do in mars
1: yeah i mean essentially yeah, uh, um and and I think they quickly realized like, oh, the Pacific is a huge dynamic area. And if you build a city on it, it's going to like get swamped and, and like sink into the ocean. And so and then next, they were next trying to, and they were trying to um, anchor it off of Tahiti because they were trying to they realize, oh, okay, we can't have it in the middle of the ocean. So we're going to like try to take advantage of a country that we can try to buy Just off to so, like, <laughs> or, and like have this like <laughs> near the, near the islands, but not like, on there because we don't also don't want to be subject to the regulations so mm-hmm. no, know i think it's fallen like apart since then but i was just interested in the ways that like there was yeah like i mean speaking of elon like it was also this idea of like okay so he launched this car up into space as this like dick measuring contest thing there's these other investors who are trying to do this island in the ocean and um then seeing what was happening in, in honolulu was like this over history that that area that that development is on it was built up it was like agricultural marshland that was like the coral was broken up and used to fill up the land and there was a incinerator and they used the like um incineration waste to fill up the the marshland and so it was like these incursions and interactions on the land and across the ocean now and in space and like all these ways that these like hyper capitalist extensions of this colonial impulse to like reshape nature to like fit within this but then at least in what i was could observe in in honolulu it was also it's cloaked in these sort of gestures from the natural world like using the visual language of the landscape in hawaii trying to create these beautiful like reflective buildings that capture the sky or the ocean or you know all of these and they named themselves um using these native Hawaiian words to make it seem poetic and like very um as part of the nature the cultural landscape and the natural landscape and so you know it was it was just like this very jarring like experience to, to see but it's also i think what i was trying to talk about in the essay especially was that it's also a place that i go to a lot because it's where the m- movie theater is at home and like some of the major retail is like in that area and so mm. it's this place i interact with all the time yeah um, and kind of like what you're saying at the beginning we're entangled in all of these things and yeah. so I, but i wanted to at least understand critically like but i also mentioned in the essays that it's basically where the Honolulu Biennial um, has taken place over the last two cycles, and so it's something that's very embedded in the arts right. community there. And so, how do how do we contend with these things and understand at least like what we're getting into when, when yeah. we engage with these institutions and this the language that they're trying to deploy as part of it?
0: And then your piece, I know, it took the form of a bunch of sculptures, but also a video and. Uh, what was your decision to make a video out of it? I, I mean, I was just curious because it seemed like most of your work was more, uh, you know, paper and uh, 3D sculptural.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think...
0: Can as... I ask his interest as S O he makes video?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was... I'm trying to remember if there was like a... I think it was because it actually started with a very specific visual image. So the like visual element on site that first struck me and was the reason why i was even really interested in the show was that um one of the like iconic things in that area is that there's one of the buildings has this infinity glass bottom pool that like hangs out over what is like a fairly busy street like it's literally across the street from the big movie theater so you like walk out especially at night because they light it, it lighted up so it's glowing so you see this glowing like block of water flowing uh, above the street and so it's this really like ostentatious ridiculous thing and you know this is like a block and a half from the ocean and so it felt like this very weird like you took this chunk of, of water and now trying to like float it above, above our heads mm-hmm. inaccessible but very visible to everybody below and so um i just had this like vision of that that pool as this block of ice that would slowly melt and like collapse over Mm. over you know the course of a video and so that's the the spine of the video is that um sequence and like i created a facade and like got some of the ocean water from like right on the street and froze it into block of ice and had it melt
2: Mm. um,
1: down that that facade and so and so it kind of built from there a, a then wanted to like add a few other elements that seemed like they were resonant with what i could see was going on and like do these sort of like small interventions into the space there and so they were kind of performative in some ways um oh and then i also was as i was Mm -hmm. doing the research i was really struck by the ways um the developers talked about the space on their like marketing blog essentially and so I was taking excerpts of mm-hmm. the language that there's basically screen capturing the, the the text and then excerpting small parts of it mm-hmm. that I would kind of flash and edit in, in between the sequences just as a way of like kind of really highlighting the not the absurdity, but the, the ways that they really did leverage the poetic language of nature in yeah. how they talked about the space. And it was also partially based on a project that I did Maybe two, three, two years before that, where I did this kind of performance intervention using some of my paper sculptures where I destroyed them and, or like slowly, uh, ritualistically destroyed them, mm-hmm. like at these different sites around Chinatown in, in San Francisco and created a video of that, of that performance. And so it, I think video has been a way of trying to bring in some of those elements where I still think of it as being very, um, sculpture centered and driven but it's
0: you mean um, your work or you mean you want your videos to be more sculpture centered
1: um i don't know if it, it's necessarily that i want it to be but it just seems like it mm. like that's the starting point for it it's always mm. like i have a sculpture and then i know that it has to live somehow mm. or like mm. it's not just like the object it's the yeah, action yeah. and so the video is just kind of a way of capturing and enacting that
0: i'm you know i worked sort of the opposite into in how i came across video because the first I guess real video I did it was an assignment in grad school and the professor told me to make a sculpture but the final product couldn't be the sculpture it had to be either the photograph or video or performance and so that's when I was like that's that's sort of the, the process that I began when in terms of like discarding the object Mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. because what actually mattered was how the object was represented in the photograph or video and ultimately I did a, I did a performance which then I videoed but but then mm-hmm. after that this the object didn't matter and so I was sort of working the opposite and sort of not trying to make the object live or find a place to live but it was sort of like just a means just so that I could have a, a video you know <laughs> I guess yeah 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 but um yeah um One of the last questions I had, I was curious about, was sort of like your your tactic in terms of kind of talking about yourself through a sort of generalized subject matter. And what I mean by that is sort of I was curious, like how you, if you, you know, how you saw yourself in terms of your own identity as a as a Japanese American, Japanese Hawaiian American, and how that enters your work because it seems like you kind of approach it more from like a two or three steps backwards from a sort of like a maybe Asian American perspective. Um, And Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm curious about that because, you know, and like we were talking about different tactics, like, you know, how you have related tactics um, and then your own work and how they're just simply different methods to approach the, um, to approach a sort of idea. And for me, I've always found that, you know, I always say like the more specific I am, the more I'm able to put a, uh, a face or make it sort of uh, more relatable by having such a specific story. So I'm curious, like, mm. you know, if you, if you ever uh, enter your own specificity in terms of your own identity or you're tactically, purposely kind of stepping back from it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think it's evolved a bit over time. But I think especially early on, it was a very deliberate approach because... And I think I always culture, and maybe this isn't accurate per se, but I, I, I think of it as in some ways like a very Asian American studies-ish frame where like I know that that's my background and I know that informs everything that I'm working on, but I also believe very strongly in the expansiveness of that, that like subjects and things that are not on their face explicitly asian american or Mm -hmm. you know whatever um are also of that because of the you know the ways they intersect with our lives and um the issues that are relevant to us and so i always wanted to like not have to center that but challenge people to understand that like this is also part of it and that's the lens i bring to everything that i'm doing and you know you you just have to look at my cv and you know that that's like very much my background I I did know the downside to that is that I did find that like 90% of people don't pick that up or realize that. Mm. And I had this experience where I curated a show. Oh God, I feel like it's been a while now, maybe like five or six years ago or something like that. And it was a show of all artists of color that was looking at um, narratives of place. And I, and I was really proud of it. I was, I thought it was a, a great show. I still think it's, it was a good show, but I realized that like, um, there were a few subsequent shows at other places and some of the curators. I remember actually a curator who was, who is one of my coworkers, um, um, was working on a show and they were like, Oh, you know, there hasn't been a lot of shows that like have just feature artists of color and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I remember <laughs> being so insulted. Like I'm, I'm standing right here and like, it's clear that you didn't even pick up on that that side of it because I didn't foreground it deliberately because I wanted to to challenge people mm-hmm. to have to to put those perspectives out there, but not have to have everyone be like se- have that centered on folks' identities. So, oh, so
0: that that show was more looking at it from a more abstract sense. You mean?
1: Um, not necessarily abstract. It was it was still very like like the individual works within that like a lot of them did deal with like either um specific sites that were very rooted in people's mm. experiences or identity or places um but as a like curatorial frame i didn't mm, want to have it be this totalizing thing yeah. mm-hmm. um and so and so you know just, it was just and that was one of the other things that kind of fed into related tactics is like i realized if I don't make those things clear, there's people who just aren't gonna pick up on the, yeah. the like. There, yeah. there are artists who realized that, and I, I knew that they appreciated it. But it was mostly artists of color who also are dealing with those issues. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think one of the nice things about working as a collective is that it allows us to put forward those kinds of frameworks without it necessarily being like this thing that overwhelms the work of any one person whether it's the artist in the show or us as collective members and so yeah but i I, so it's something that i've wrestled with in my individual practice as well and i think it's it's coming to a place where i'm a little bit happier with the balance of it because in the more recent projects those those elements have come to the fore a little bit more like i did a a series of Sculptures that were translated into posters that were part of a public art project, um, and at least a couple of the pieces dealt with Either Asian American issues explicitly or talked about my position as a Japanese looking American in relation to another artist I was working with especially on one piece um, working with Grace Rosario Perkins because The history that we're dealing with was about Japanese American and Native American histories around internment and so the the kind of echo of us work, being the ones working on the project was really important and so i made that very explicit in the didactic for the piece and then the hawaii project even though it's it's not necessarily about like my japanese Americanness, it's about like hawaii and growing up in hawaii and a little bit more explicit around those kinds of that lens on on the work and so i think it's yeah like I, i'm still trying to navigate it but letting it come in when it needs to come yeah, in.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. So it, yeah, I, I think it was, a lot of it was really shaped by kind of like what I was trying to do with that, my grad school thesis around like, how do we continue to advance the ways that Asian American work and the work of artists of color in general is, is talked about that's not stuck in the same like frameworks that we've always had to rely on in the past, but also not erasing it by being like, trying to uh neutralize it in in this um abstracted way so mm, yeah i'm um, fine i'm still negotiating the balance of that but hopefully i'll find the right balance soon
0: or it's, it's you know it's a lifelong endeavor i guess if you find it you'll probably stop making art
1: <laughs> right or, or maybe yeah if i find it, it it means that it's time to like come up with new new tactics because yeah. it'll become outdated very quickly
0: yeah yeah um yeah i don't have any other questions anything else you want to talk about anything i missed that that you think is important to understanding (laughs) west
1: this this is had been has been more revealing than i think in the interview i've done so because the
0: other ones you're you're interviewing someone else right
1: yeah or even when people have interviewed me it's been so specific that this is like much more far-reaching so oh that's good yeah so <laughs> I'm, I'm very curious how, how this is gonna live out in the world but it is it, it's, it's been good that's good. Things. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah well thank you Weston for uh, chatting with
1: me yeah thank you for having me
0: Seeing Color is recorded edited and produced by myself Z1 Chung Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle seeingcolorpod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.